Good evening, Beacon Baptist Church. How are you? I'm glad you're here. Thank you for your faithfulness. I am, as Andy said, yes, this is our last uh, Sunday here in the state of Florida, which is a weird thing for me to say. It's kind of uh, bittersweet in a lot of, lot of ways, but it's, I think it's fitting that uh, my last Sunday here is with this church. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't just take a quick minute, and I just wanted to kind of relay to you just how much uh, this church has meant to both Natalie and I. Uh, we first visited here back in the early part of 2015. I remember we sat somewhere on this side on a Sunday morning just after a, just after Christmas. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I remember we sat through the sermon and uh, we we had found this church just by Googling Baptist churches, you know. <laughs> and uh, we ended up visiting here and we sat there. And when we left, both Natalie and I looked at each other and we were amazed that we had found this church, but we also came to the same conclusion that this is where we belong. This was our home, and uh, thank you so much for making us feel at home for all these years. It has been a joy to uh, learn from you and to pour ourselves into you as you have poured yourselves into us and to learn from your pastor. I appreciate Pastor Blaylock so very much, and I'm glad that uh, I can call him a friend as well as a pastor, so thank you. We will miss this church, and then I'm so glad that when we come back to Florida, we all always have a church that we can call home, and that, to me, is truly special. Um, I want you to take notice again of those verses that were just read, Psalms 119, 169 through 176. These are the psalmist's words as he's closing out this magnum opus of Psalms, the longest chapter in your Bible. And notice what he says there at verse 169. He says, Let my cry come near before thee, O Lord. Give me understanding according to thy word. Let my supplication come before thee. Deliver me according to thy word. I, it isn't certain what occasion has inspired these words of the psalmist, what he was going through, what he was enduring. But whatever it was, you can be sure and you can be certain that it was something truly terrifying. It must have been a truly stressful moment in his life to galvanize these sorts of resolve, these sorts of words, to trust in God's word alone. If you read all 176 verses, as I did several times this afternoon, you will realize that David is seeking rest. He's seeking a refuge in that word of the Lord, in those words of the Lord. Notice what he says there in those verses, according to thy word. He says it twice. This really is the theme of the entire psalm, seeking respite, seeking refuge. Look at verse 28 with me really quick. You'll notice what he says in verse 28. He says, my soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. Notice verse 82. He says again, Mine eyes fail for thy word, saying, When wilt thou comfort me? You can sense the desperation in David's voice. You can sense sort of the grief that he is feeling. Look again at verse 107. He says, I am afflicted very much. Quicken me. Make me alive, O Lord, according unto thy word. Obviously, it's a huge understatement just reading those verses, but also if you know David's entire life, that David was familiar with suffering, with adversity. When we think of King David, you most likely think of suffering and trials. 
You know, he spent most of his early adult life being hunted. He was a fugitive king, you might say. He was on the run from Saul after he was anointed by Samuel. And then he did not experience any peace during his reign as king once he finally uh, ascended to the throne. You might say there that he was the soldier king. He was warring throughout his reign. He, he was plagued with griefs as he was king. And his monarchy was characterized by, by stress and, and strife and scandal. And I think such is why when David comes to the end of his life, uh, he is forbidden from building the temple. If you remember, at the end of his life, he has this desire to build a temple for the Lord. And God says no. I'll read you that verse. It's 1 Chronicles 22.8. You don't have to turn there. But God says to him, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, God says to him, and hast made great wars. Therefore thou shalt not build an house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. This was David's kingship. It was plagued with wars and griefs and struggle. But I think out of that come the Psalms. And I think that's precisely why the Psalms are so relatable. Because they come out of those seasons of life where David was struggling. Where David was striving even to find a grain of hope in his life. The man after God's own heart was truly a man of war, a man of conflict, and a man of struggle. And that's why his psalms, to me, are so applicable to every single part of our lives. And I actually think David's life kind of mirrors, you know, the lives of other great songwriters. If you, you know, search any sort of pop music or rock music uh, in the library of that, of that type of genre of music, you'll note that a lot of songwriters wrote some of their most famous songs through the most intense parts of their lives. Some of the most memorable songs were composed in the middle of life's most intense griefs and hardships. And I think that's exactly what the Psalms are. They are great lines from dark places. And I think that's because songwriting and singing in general is uniquely therapeutic. That's why we sing when we come to church. It prepares us, but it's also sort of a form of spiritual therapy, I think, because we are all singing the same lines. We're singing the same theology as we sing. We are aligning our hearts to praise the same God. And most of the psalms, I think, are the same. Spiritual songs composed in the severest of struggles. But I also think this, as I've read the psalms, and especially this one, Psalm 119 in particular, I don't think these were necessarily words that David always put into practice. He says a lot of things in these psalms, and I think he's, he's actually, I think he's actually uh, trying to convince himself of what he's writing. He's almost as if you're getting a peek inside of David's journal as he's trying to convince himself of things that he wanted to believe. Even as he was facing life's severest trials, he was writing down these truths, writing down these things that he wanted so desperately to be true in his life. And I think by writing them, he's trying to convince himself of that. He's convincing himself here in Psalm 119 that the word of God is his truest delight. Look at verse 18 with me really quick. He says in verse 18, Open thou mine eyes, uh, excuse, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Or verse 24 where he says, Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. 
He is convincing himself of the truth that this word of God, that these words of his Lord are his only source of comfort, his only source of rest. That regardless of what's going on, regardless of what's happening, these are words upon which he can rely, upon which he can find rest. And I think that's the sense of this whole psalm. And that's why I think this last stanza these last eight verses, and as it begins in Psalm 119-169, it offers a very, to me, a very unique, almost anticlimactic ending to this psalm. And I want to look at that really quickly. I have three, uh, three quick components that make up this stanza, I think. First of all, in verses 169 and 170, I think we have, what, we have David's plea. David's plea. Look at those verses again. He says, Let my cry... Come near before thee, O Lord. Give me understanding according to thy word. Let my supplication come before thee. Deliver me according to thy word. Again, you could hear it. You could hear the desperation in David's voice. You can hear it in his words. He says, let my cry come before you. Literally, that word cry there means a ringing in the ears, a ringing sound. He is asking God, let my cry, let my prayer come before you as a ringing sound in your ears. And he says also in the next verse, let my supplication. Again, it's a word of crying out to God. It's a a word of plea for grace. Literally, what he's saying here is, God, I need your grace to be near you so I can ask for your grace to stay close to you. I'm desperate for it, God. And notice he's not confident in himself. He's not confident in something that he has accomplished or something that he has done. He is confident only in his God. He says, according unto thy word. He doesn't barge into God's presence with his righteousness in hand and say to God, hey God, listen up because I can talk to you. Actually, he says, God, I I want you to hear me. I want you to turn your ear to me and hear me, not because of me, but based on your own word. He appeals to God's word. Hear me based on that. Listen to me because of what you have promised. It's almost as if he's saying, God, remember those things that you promised to me. Listen to me based on that. Listen to me based on your word. And in that way... Very clearly, this prayer of David is very opposite of the, of the Pharisee's prayer in Luke 18, if you remember that. Remember the Pharisee and the publican, they go up to the temple to pray. And the, public, or the Pharisee is praying of all of these things that he has done, the things that he has accomplished throughout the week. And he says, God, thank you that I'm not like that man over there. And the publican prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, with his eyes not even looking up to heaven. I think similarly, David is praying, God, I can't even be near you, but I want you to hear me. And I want you to listen, because you've promised to. That was his boast. And these two verses, they echo each other. These pleas of David echo each other. Hear me, God, deliver me, rescue me, because you have promised to do it. This thing in my life, this adversity that I'm struggling with, hear me because I need you. And I think these verses give us the proper portrait of prayer itself. That is weakness and helplessness. He knows that he needs help. This king needs help. And so he approaches his helper for that help. 
And that's very clearly the assertion of our power, or excuse me, that's very clearly the, the, the posture of our prayer, which is not the assertion of power. There are no mystical words that we can uh, pray or speak to invoke God's power. There's no sort of magical incantations that we can recite in order to get a word from the Lord. All power in prayer is in the one that we are praying to. Prayer is not the assertion of power. Actually, prayer is the expression of utter weakness, of utter helplessness. God, I can't do this, but I know that you can. And actually, David, as he's saying, I know that you have promised to do it, to relieve me, to rescue me, to deliver me. And God, I need you to do that right now. That's very comforting to me because God doesn't, you know, God isn't impressed or disappointed by what you say or don't say when you pray. Did you know that? Because you use these and thous and old King James English in your prayers doesn't mean that God hears you any better than if you're stammering and stuttering and struggling to get out the words. He hears you. He hears your five-year-old when they're learning how to pray over the dinner table. And he hears you when you're 80 and you fall asleep while you pray. He hears both the same. He hears them all equally. Because that's all he's after is our humble reliance. He's after our weakness. And whether we stutter or stumble... Or even as his apostles, remember when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and they fall asleep while Jesus is praying. Whether you do that as well, God hears you. Because your prayers, as he says at the beginning of the stanza, are ringing in his, in his ears as cries. That's David's plea. But look at next verses 171 and 172. This is David's praise. Look at it. He says, My lips shall utter praise when thou hast taught me thy statutes. My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. David moves from crying now to singing. His mind is literally captured by that word of promise that he is relying on. And he's captured by it such that he has to sing. He says, my lips shall utter praise. Literally, that's pour forth. It's pouring out of him that praise of his God. Next, that phrase where it says, my tongue shall speak, literally is, my tongue has to sing. My tongue has to get this out. I have to praise my God. And because, also, take note of what he is praising God for. Look at what he says. My lips shall utter praise when thou hast taught me thy statutes. My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. Verse 174, I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. He's delighting in the word of God because the word of God tells him where the righteousness of God comes from. He's delighting in it because he is being told that this righteousness is not of his, it's the righteousness of God. And you can only delight in God's law when you have been delivered from it. He's delighting in it because he's remembering God's word of promise, which promises to deliver him from the curse of the law. Those statutes and those commandments in the word of God tell us of the one that is Jesus, who stood in our place and kept those statutes and commandments on our behalf. 
And he's singing now because he knows his Savior. He's singing now because this word of promise has promised him a Savior, a true and better son of David, a true and better king. Remember the promise that he was given back in 1 Chronicles when he is wanting to build God a house? God tells him, no, I'm going to build you a house, David, by your seed. He's banking on that promise. This is why we sing too. The praise of the redeemed comes from a recollection of their redemption. Why we sing with boldness and gusto and passion when we come to church is because we're remembering that as we learned in that song that we just sang, that grace hath redeemed us once for all. We sing because of that. And this is what David was after. Look at verse 171 again. He says, My lips shall utter praise when thou hast taught me Thy statutes. Literally, he's asking God, let me learn of your word. Let me learn of your statutes. Because the more I learn of you, the more I am able to praise you. And the same with us. The same with us. The more we know of God, the more there is that we can know to praise God for. When we will never run out of things to praise Him for. We will never run out of things to admire about our God who delivers us, who rescues us. One commentator said it this way, The ever-increasing knowledge of God will excite ever-increasing praise. And as God is, is infinite and eternal, it follows that the increase of knowledge and of happiness in those who are saved will be eternal. These things will go hand in hand forever and ever. Increased knowledge of God equals increased praise of God. That is the life of a believer. That is the life of King David. And this wasn't something that he was obligated to do. This wasn't something that God was coercing out of him. Obviously, David is desperate for this. He says, my lips shall utter praise. He is just relentless in the fact that he has to. Jesus frees us to praise Him by Himself. <laughs> Jesus' body and blood frees us to praise His body and His blood sacrificed for us, shed for us. This is our plea. Just like that hymn that we often sing during the invitation time, just as I am without one plea, without one plea of our own, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's our plea. This was David's plea. He was looking forward unto the promise of God's word that this plea, this plea of Jesus Christ himself, would stand in his place. This is the essence of our plea and the essence of our praise. And every person that praises God here in the sanctuary and all the churches across these United States knows something of the pardon that Jesus has paid for them. And that's why they sing. And that's why David is singing now. David praises God because he learned where his righteousness came from. The promise of Jesus' bleeding side. But thirdly and lastly and quickly, notice David's persistence. Look at verse 173 through the end of the chapter. He says, Let thine hand help me. For I have chosen thy precepts, and I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise thee, and let thy judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. This ending to me seems anticlimactic. 
It's almost as if this psalm ends with sort of a fizzle, right? It kind of just fizzles out. He's spent 175 verses exalting and determining and resolving to love God and love God's word above everything else. And it would be natural to conclude that in that study, in that course of 175 verses, that he is now some super spiritual disciple who never falls, who never falters, who has mastered the art of sanctification and is now ascending unto God. (laughs) But we know that to not be true. Obviously, that is very untrue by what the stanza says, and we know that it is untrue by David's own testimony. The stanza says the opposite. Notice the last verse. I have gone astray. I have wandered. The sense is, I have wandered, and I will wander again. That's why he follows it up right away. I have gone astray. Seek me. Seek thy servant. David knows his own heart. He knows his tendency to wander. And this is why, the, why David sings in the first place. This is why David play, prays in the first place. Because he knows his own heart wanders away from God very often. He says there, he's persistent with God. He says in verse 173, help me. Surround me, Lord. Defend me. Don't let me fall. Help me. He says in verse 176, seek me. Don't let me go. Don't forsake me. Seek after your servant. Seek after your lost sheep. And I love the sense of that word, seek, here. It's literally, seek me with your hand. And that reminds me of something because I used to do this. And I can imagine Andy doing this too. But I'm not going to accuse him of it. I'm going to use myself. But you can tell me afterwards if this is true. I had siblings. I have an older brother and a younger sister. And I remember if my siblings were downstairs and I was upstairs and my parents would tell me, go get your brother and sister for dinner, what do you think I did? I yelled down the stairs, time for dinner! Was that what they were after? Was that what they were wanting me to do? No, they were wanting me to go downstairs and not act like a hoodlum and go downstairs and actually get them and ask them nicely to come up for dinner. That would be the proper and the etiquette thing to do. But but I often did not do that. Literally, that's what David is asking for right here. He's saying, God, don't call me out by just shouting my name. I want you to seek me with your hand. I want you to come up so close to me that you can hold me. Actually, and I love that he uses that word sheep there because it reminds me he's asking for that shepherd to come after him and break his legs as a lamb and put him over his shoulders and carry him home. God, I need that. I am so desperate in this moment, but I need you to find me with your hand. This is the shepherd that David knows. He knows that God will chase him down. And this entire stanza, I think, is David praying for God to keep chasing him down. I have gone astray, and I will again, but God, don't stop helping me. Please, don't stop pursuing me. I need you. And verse 176, to me, is made all the more compelling when you compare it with the end of the previous stanza. Look at verse 167. And compare the different terms that David uses. Compare the different phraseology that David uses. 
Look at what he says. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. And then he ends, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. There's a big difference in those confessions, don't you think? <laughs> I have kept your testimonies, and yet I've, go- I've gone astray. There's a, a, a contrast between obeying In wanderings, how can these things come from the same person? How can these confessions come from the same mouth? And I think if you actually take a step back and look at this whole psalm, this is what he's been saying the whole time. He's been saying, God, sometimes I obey you and yet sometimes I wander. And that's why I need you. Look at, flip back to the beginning, look at verse 8. Notice what he says, I will Keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. I will keep them, God. Don't cast me off. Look at verse 15. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. It's almost as if he's saying, I have forgotten it in the past, but I am vowing to you, Lord, I will not forget it now. I'm not going to forget it anymore, or at least I'm going to do my best not to. (laughs) David was honest about who he was. He was a lost sheep who was desperate for his shepherd. And he wanted to love God above everything else, but sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he didn't want anything to do with God. And that's why he's desperate for God's word. And I think if you're like me, you would have to be honest tonight and say, that's exactly the same thing I have to confess. That there's sometimes that I don't want God. There's moments and hours and perhaps even days where I don't want to do anything with God. That I want what my flesh wants. That I want what, what I want because I want it. Where I give in to pride and give in to selfishness and give in to greed. There are times where I'm transfixed between what I know I should do and what I know I should not do and I know what I know is right and what I know is wrong and yet I still choose what is wrong. It reminds me right of what Paul says in Romans 7. Let me read those verses to you really quick because it's so similar to what David confesses here. Romans 7 verses 15 through 19. Let me turn there and read it for you really quick. David, or excuse me, Paul says this. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. You can sense this in Paul. You can sense this in David. I can sense this in myself. That the evil that I don't want to do, that's often what I end up doing. And it's because our hearts have not been truly remade into all that God has for us. And that's coming at the day of glory If you're honest, you would have to say the same thing as Paul does. 
You have to say the same thing that David does. That there's times where you don't want God above every single thing else in this world. And that's exactly why we have the gospel. That's exactly why we have the good news. That's exactly why we have these Bibles in front of us. To remind us of the fact that if God only saved people who wanted him above everything else, there would be no one in heaven. The good news is that even while we didn't want God, Jesus was dying for us. Jesus was saving for us, was saving us. As Paul says in Romans 5 elsewhere, that while we were yet sinners, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were trying to make something of ourselves, not while we were trying to change, not while we were trying to be good, while we were sinners. This is our God. The God of David, the God of Paul, the God of you as well. He doesn't wait to uh, be wanted. He goes out in search of his sheep. He goes out in search of them. The good shepherd goes after them. He doesn't sit idly by and waits for the lost sheep to find their way back into the fold. He goes out and hunts them down. This was David's shepherd. This was David's good shepherd. This is your shepherd as well. Because it says, according unto thy word. If you are here tonight and you are saved, your salvation isn't based on how you feel right now. Feelings come and go. Feelings fluctuate with the wind. Feelings are fickle. Your salvation is based on the eternal fact of God's sacrifice for us, which is forever. It's the good news of the gospel. So whether you are enduring uh, some of the severest of life's trials and you don't feel like a Christian, bank on what God's word says. Not what your circumstances tell you. Not what your feelings want you to believe. Listen to this from an old writer. He says, The gospel is not a list of duties to be performed or feelings to be produced or frames which we are to pray ourselves into in order to make God think well of us and in order to fit us for receiving pardon. The gospel is the good news of the great work done upon the cross. The knowledge of that finished work is immediate peace. If you are striving for some semblance of peace in your life, go back to this word, this word of promise. The fact that Jesus is our plea, that Jesus is our praise, and that Jesus persists after us. He's the one that does it for us. This is the good news of your salvation and mine. It's established forever in the fact of Jesus dying for you and your faith in that fact, not your feelings. We may not love God perfectly, but he has perfectly loved us. That's the good news. And we can know and believe and trust in that no matter what the days have hold, held for us, no matter what the days ahead hold for us. Because this is what his word tells us. So think of today. It's a Sunday. Maybe your day has been stressful and you're coming to the end of it with nothing but a faith that amounts to a fizzle, that amounts to nothing. 
That is enough. Jesus says that though your faith be as small as a mustard seed, that is enough. Because it's not the quality of your faith or the quantity of it. It's who your faith is in. Is your faith in yourself or is your faith in the eternal God who has come down for us? Is your faith in your circumstances, in your occupation, in your surroundings, in your current life situation? Or is it in your Savior who has taken your place for you? All that matters is the object of your faith. I love that verse at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2.13, it says this. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. God cannot deny his word. God cannot lie. So even if we are faithless, God is faithful. Even if we are uh, coming to the end of ourselves and we find ourselves fickle and frail and feeble, God is great in faithfulness. Even like King David who comes to the end of his psalm and he says, I have gone astray, I've lost the way, I've wandered. God, seek me. God is faithful to find him. Our weak faith is always eclipsed by God's great faith. Therefore, we have to ask, where is your faith? Is it in your own plea before the Lord, your your own persistence of Him, or is it in Him persisting after you, in God's plea on your behalf? Where is your faith? Have you been found? Or are you still wandering? Whose grip are you believing in? Whose plea are you trusting in? Your own or the Lord's? Let us pray.